You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the law firm of Bose, McKinney, and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and equipment needs at McAllister.com. And the people on the podcast today know, remember, and love P. McAllister. We are pleased to announce our podcast is now a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You can find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle and me at leadersandlegends.net. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our subject today is remembering Governor Robert Orr. Our guests are Mark Lubbers, Darlene Sherman, and Bob Grand. And as usual for these podcasts, when we have this sort of subject matter, our co-host today is State House legend Jim Shella. Thank you, everyone, for agreeing to come on the podcast today. Thank you. Happy to be here. We've done these podcasts. We've done them on uh, Senator Birch Bayh and Senator Richard Luger, Governor Joe Kernan, and Mayor Bill Hudnut, Congressman Andy Jacobs. And actually, I was talking to Jim Shell earlier today. We're going to try to put one together on the, on the career of uh, Governor Frank O'Bannon. But today, the spotlight is on Governor Orr, all three of these guests worked for him and Jim Shella covered him for most of his term. Jim got here in December 1982. Jim, let me turn it over to you and the podcast is yours. Well, just for context, let's, uh, for those who may not remember, let's spell out that, that Bob Orr served two terms from January of 1981 to January of 1989. He succeeded uh, Otis Bowen and uh, preceded uh, Evan Bayh as, as governor of Indiana. And, and just for starters, let's, uh, e if we could have each of you explain uh, e how you came to the OR administration and what, what your role was. Uh, Bob Grand, let's go with you first. Well, I was, um, I was going to law school part-time. I uh, went to a bar. I was uh, overserved by a guy named Ken Cochran, another guy named John Hammond. And I was offered a job to go in as the administrative assistant. Um, I took that job. Uh, at that point, my girlfriend left me because she said, you're going to politics and not finishing law school. Uh, my mother was happy because uh, I was making more money than my father ever made. Um, but uh, I became what today is hard to describe. I, I took care of uh, driving him. Um, we didn't have state police protection as a, as a lieutenant governor. I did all the advance work. I handled, um, you know, any a sundry, uh, any number of things that were 
constituency related, um, but primarily uh, spent uh, almost three years, uh, some of which I was driving, some of which state police were driving with him in a car uh, traveling the state of Indiana. And, and for those who may not know, Ken Cochran and John Hammond were longtime aides to Bob Orr. Uh, Darlene Pettengill, what, what brought you to the Orr administration? Me. <laughs> yeah, Mark yes. <laughs> My name was Pettengill back then, by the way. Um, well, you know, I was in the State House since 1979, and I watched Bob Orr from a distance and learned from him um, as he presided over the Indiana Senate for two years. I was on the staff of the Indiana Senate. I then went into the administration in 1984, um, working for NDOT as their director of public affairs and, and liaison to the governor's office, lieutenant governor's office in the legislature. So spent a lot of time uh, during that period of time learning about transportation issues, which was one of Bob Orr's priorities throughout his, uh, his term in office, and then uh, joined, the joined the governor's office in late 1986. Uh, Mark Lebers did bring me... Uh, into the office and I worked under his uh, tutelage for several months before he left the office. Okay, Mark, you weren't there at the beginning. I, I know that you, you uh, basically came out of the bullpen to try to try to save things. Uh, I, tell me about how you got there. So I had worked for Dick Luger from 70, early 77 until just after the Republican National Convention in 1980. Then went off to business school and was working in a really perfect job for me in St. Louis. And I got a phone call from Lou Gehrig. And Lou said, um, hey, you should be press secretary to the governor. And I said, I have never had anything to do with the media. And he said, yeah, but you can do it. So I took advantage of a free trip home to be interviewed by the governor and um, Jim Neal, for those of you who remember Jim Neal, he was a former Indiana Republican state chairman and owner of the Noblesville Daily Ledger and a great journalist in his day. And so the two of them sat in the study of the governor's residence and interviewed me. And I didn't know Bob Orr except by name then and fell in love with him sort of in that meeting. He was curious as all get out and it was clear to me that he had something inside that was uh, motivating him to a much larger vision for the state of Indiana. And he was looking for a way to get that done. And they offered me the job. Uh, I went back home to St. Louis and uh, St. Louis is a blue blood town. It's, it's a place where you gotta be born into the place completely different from Indianapolis, where I think it still it was then, still is, I think, a meritocracy. If you want to play a role, you can. You just have to put your hand up and do work. Um, so we came home uh, and set about working. I guess I realized you had been only on the job six months. You were the very first journalist I met. Uh, I didn't know that. You were. Um, and uh, I learned very quickly, it took about three weeks of being press secretary to a governor that there were only two rules. One was always tell the truth. And the other one was never be boring. And I, you were never two, boring. You were I, never I, boring. I, I tried. And then he hired me. 
<laughs> well, let me tell you, I, it, I, don't, I don't think it's a secret to any of you folks that um, prior to your arrival, Bob Orr had some media relations problems. Uh, his first uh, press secretary as governor uh, operated in what I thought was very strange fashion. He, uh, he had an office that, that uh, was in uh, the main suite of offices next to the governor's uh, big office. And you had to come in and see a receptionist in order to get him to come out and talk to you. And you had to carry on all of your conversations in front of everyone in the governor's waiting area. Um, not a good way to do business for those well, who that, know how this works. Well, that's stupid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, and, and everything changed when you got there. Um, and they did, essentially the administration was opened up. And, uh, and I also think it's, it's, it's worth noting, um, Bob Orr's first term was, was pretty rough. Um, there was a tax increase uh, in 1982 uh, there were scandals to be dealt with in the state prisons and the mental hospitals. Um, he, they needed um, a little bit of a correction to right the ship uh, there before the end of the first term, correct? Well, I would, you know, it was easy for me to diagnose um, and analyze what was happening because I, I had no roots uh, with any of the people involved. You know, Bob and I both sort of came out of the Luger enterprise and had a little bit different view of the world. Um, he and I were in different times, new to state government, but Bob was able to give me some really good advice about what I was getting into because he lived through the beginning of that period. So I guess in three parts, he was succeeding at the time, the most popular governor in Indiana history in Otis Bowen. Um, I've said it enough times in private. I can probably say it in public now. Uh, I think Otis Bowen was probably one of the worst governors in Indiana history. He was a colossal do nothing governor, uh, which fit uh, the temperament candidly of the state. Uh, people well, he he was best known for cutting property taxes, but but by doing so, he created a lot of other problems. Well, so he did that in his first in, his, in the first year, and then spent the next seven, in my opinion, not doing very much. And in addition to having to follow someone who was so popular, um, we inherited, or Bob Orr inherited, a lot of those uh, executive leadership positions in parts of state government, and in particular parts where there were problems. And when you follow a very popular governor, it's unpopular to start axing his people. And so he was sort of caught betwixt and between. And then externally, you had this other problem, which we'd had gigantic inflation, which helps government uh, on the way up because property taxes go up with property values, income taxes go up with incomes. But in, 19, in, in mid 1980, Ronald Reagan and Paul Volcker, acting independently, decided they were going to squeeze inflation out of the economy, and that caused economic collapse. When I joined the staff in June of 1983, the unemployment rate in the UAW belt, Anderson, Marion, Richmond, was nearly 18%. And so you had state revenues falling off the table, and so... Uh, 
Grand can talk about this or Darlene can talk about this from her position in the Senate, Bob Orr acted against the advice of Republican leadership in the legislature and called a special session in December of 1982 in honor of Chella's arrival <laughs> and, and raised taxes before the 83 legislative session. So he's got a predecessor who's incredibly popular. He's got scandals emerging in parts of state government. And he's now got an economic crisis on his hands. I mean, it was a full-blown, he's a technical term, shitstorm. <laughs> and, and as I said, uh, uh, he had some staff issues. So, uh, you know, so you, have to, you, have to, you have to layer in the fact, too, Mark, that in eight, 1982, uh, the, the political significance of this is if the election in 1982 had gone one more week, Dick Luger would not be would not have been a United States senator. I mean, yeah. every single line in politics going through 1982, starting in the summer all the way through the fall, um, was a down. I mean, there was nothing you could do, and and I think that's the courage of Bob Orr in the face of all this political unheaval and all of the thing. He said, "This is what we need to do, and this is why." And I think when people talk about political environments. That was a toxic environment in 1982, uh, in my opinion. Looking ahead then to two years later, you're going to have to run for election. Yep, you're exactly right. Well, he had enormous courage. Remember, this is a guy, and, and, and uh, courage and, and moral rectitude. Um, this is a guy who was three months away from graduating from the Harvard Business School when Pearl Harbor is bombed. And a week after Pearl Harbor said, I'm, I got to join the army. Uh, this isn't, I don't have a choice. Um, he never got his degree, which I'd learned 10 years later. <laughs> hmm. Well, if I could just want to add one point to that, because we would probably had a race to who would raise that, because I think that is the greatest thing about his character. The better, the even better part of his character was I had left um, in 1982, and in 1984, I think it was, would have been his, whatever, 50th or 40th anniversary, and the president of Harvard called. He appointed me as his outside. I was helping him outside. The president of Harvard wanted to give him his degree, actual degree, not an honorary degree. He wanted to give him his degree, and he had me tell the president of Harvard, I forget who it was then, that he would not show up at the reunion if they did that. If they gave him an honorary degree, that's fine, but do not give me the degree because I did not graduate. That's the kind of guy that Bob Orr was. Well, one of the things that struck me about him was he was the governor of the state, um, but he insisted that he be driven around in a Chevrolet Impala. Mm -hmm. um, and as I understand it, uh, the state police put three different engines in that car to keep it going. <laughs> I wrecked that car. Wow. <laughs> you don't know this story? I don't. So I get a phone call one day when we're doing the Subaru Isuzu deal. And Bob Orr is in Europe on a trade mission. And John Mutz is on the phone and he calls me and he says, I need you to take the Subaru guy to see the plant site. And I said, well, we probably should take one of the state police helicopters and see it from the air. He said, oh, that's a great idea. So 
I grabbed, I got dressed and I ran out of the house. I asked, called Cochran and said, can you give me a helicopter? Can we, can we see this? And we had Chuck Preston drive up to Lafayette to bring us so we could drive home. Well, Preston didn't want to drive the car home. So I dr I'm driving star one home. Star one is what is the license plate number. That's what we call the car. So we get to, we're, on, we're uh, 10 blocks from the state house at 10th and Senate and a woman blows a stop sign and T-bones the car, nearly killing the Subaru guy who was sitting in the passenger seat. <laughs> and wow. so I have no wallet. And a, a police officer who had just gone off duty saw this accident happen. And he came up and he asked me for my registration. And while I was looking for it, or for my license while I was looking for it, he ran the plate, which did, which did not say star one, and it was one of those confidential plates. And so he tries to get the ID of the car, and he can't get it. And now he has a person who doesn't have a driver's license and a car that's not in the system. And I said, maybe the registration is in the trunk. And I opened the trunk, and there's the Uzi. <laughs> <laughs> he said... He said, I think you should come get in the police car. <laughs> I had not heard that story. That was a fun day. Well, I did hear that when Bob Orr left office, he, he didn't own a car. He needed a car, and he wanted to buy that one, and the state wouldn't sell it to him, correct? Is that true, Bob? That's true. <laughs> That's true. Uh, well, so... <laughs> To just the two things about the confidential plate that came about when he was lieutenant governor because I got a confidential plate which tacked on with magnets so when we would be driving and we would be late I'd be speeding and he'd say you need to slow down you know this car says star one I said the minute we get pulled over and somebody says it's star one I'll take responsibility and it wasn't until he was governor that we went up to Lafayette Mark's home we parked to see the president I parked in a spot because we were running late. We got a ticket, and the ticket was on the confidential plate, not on star one. And President Hansen was very embarrassed, but then when they gave the governor the copy of the ticket, he insisted on paying it. He says, this isn't my license plate. And I had to tell him that we had this one in the trunk that I would throw on the car when he got in the car, and that way I could speed. So, uh, and I have the star one license plate. Uh, I, he gave it to me after the end of that year. So I have that actual plate. You deserve it. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about the 84 uh, election because after, after uh, experiencing all that trouble uh, in a first term, uh, Bob Orr runs against uh, then Democrat State Senator Wayne Townsend uh, in, in what turned out to, to be a, a very close race. Um, and yeah, that that if that race had gone another week, we'd have lost. Um, in fact, my understanding is uh, the, the Orr campaign had negative ads prepared, ready to go, uh, because they felt uh, that they were threatened. That is the last gubernatorial race in Indiana uh, where there were no uh, attack ads on the candidates. Um, and, and it was, it was closing fast. Um, well, there were Townsend negative ads. Yes. Yes. But there were none, none for more, uh, that got on the air. That's no, true. None, yeah. There were none in 2012 either, Jim. Uh, 
Okay. All right. I stand corrected. Anyway, it, yeah. it was an unusual circumstance. Um, so that was the great license. That license branches were the issue of that campaign. That's and, what I was going to say. And, and, and the uh, license branches, Quip. for those who don't remember, the license branches were controlled by the party of the governor. And the Republicans had been in control of the license branches for some time. And there had been a series of scandals, including one in Muncie, where somebody stole $400,000 uh, from the license branch. So um, I don't know how much money they were bringing into the Republican Party, but there was $400,000 to be stolen in Delaware County. Well, um, it was bringing money into both parties, of course, but more into the party in power. Right. And, and so it was significant that, that, uh, that for, the, for the members of the Republican Party that that circumstance continued. Townsend was, was promising to bring the, the license branches into state government. And Bob Orr, under a great deal of pressure, uh, late in the campaign, announced that, that he would do that as well if reelected. Correct? Correct. Right. And that's probably what saved him. It saved him, but it created a dilemma because... Your political organization, if you're the governor, is the Republican county chairman. Right. Right. And so the Republican county chairman were not happy that Bob War was going to end their little um, fiefdom. And so while it cut positively with public opinion, it cut negatively with our political organization. Sure. And it didn't cut so positively with um, the public because. Senator Townsend was able to continue campaigning on that issue and take credit for the fact that he was the one who got it changed. Correct. Let and me it just. Was very, it, it, was a di it was a very dicey election. Um, yeah, it was not fun. Let me tell my favorite story from that campaign, if you don't mind. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Bob Orr uh, rarely made a personal appearance in that campaign when he did not award a Sagamore of the Wabash, the, uh, what was known as the uh, highest civilian award uh, in Indiana. So we started recording these presentations and uh, I didn't get the story done before the election, but in December I did a story. I, I, I found the statistics and learned that Bob Orr had given out more Sagamores by far than any previous Indiana governor. We did a, we did a story that essentially uh, it indicated that he was devaluing the, the award. Uh, and so in January of 1985, I was sworn in as president of the Indianapolis Press Club, and it was his practice to come over and, and administer the oath to the board and, and the new president. And it was also his practice to give the outgoing president at Sagamore the Wabash. Uh, he he uh, gave both the outgoing president and me as Sagamore on that occasion, because he was trying to send the message, if you don't think this is worth anything, <laughs> you know, what do you think of this? I framed it. <laughs> <laughs> Grand, do you want to bust out uh, Shella? Because in the video portion of this podcast, the uh, Sagamore he has displayed is by a different governor. Ah, uh, that's that's okay. I mean, he's fortunate to have multiple Sagamores because it's uh, you know some people are, you know, bipartisan in their approach to life. Others are not. So that's, uh, that's <laughs> you know my favorite uh, Mark. Uh, Mark is understated in terms of that campaign because the role that he played and Ken and John, and it was a very intense campaign. But there was also 
uh, the beginning of, and we thought Bob War would do very well in the debates, but the one most, it was kind of an, it was really kind of a weird way that this developed. This was my memory of it, but the governor had asked me and another lawyer to spend, I would think we spent almost four and a half, five weeks looking solely at his legislative record, both Bob Orr's for his four years in the Senate and Wayne Townsend's years as the House and Senate. And they gave us a list of things to look for in terms of priorities and what they did. And I won't bore you with all of this, but at the end of the research, we had a presentation and I off the hand made the point that Wayne Townsend had never authored, co-authored, sponsored, or co-sponsored an educational issue. And Bob War seized on it. And afterwards, Cochran pulled me aside. He says, I think he's going to use this in the debate. And it was a week away. He said, you have one week to verify that that's 100% true. Because <laughs> if he goes on there and says that, you're dead. Okay. So for the next week of my life, I went right back to every single bill that was in the old uh, library where they stored them and reread every single one to make sure that he could validate that. But he did use that line uh, and it caused a little bit of a stir because there was a follow-up from the press. Maybe you, Jim, maybe I just remember there was a lot of follow-up to the point where Wayne originally said he didn't think that was correct. He didn't say no. He just said, I don't think it's correct. And it became kind of a real issue in terms of, because uh, education was a big issue. Bob Ward was pushing, as you know, in his first term. So that was my favorite thing about the campaign. But my, you, I, I sweated for about a week. My favorite thing about that campaign is that Bob Orr, who was the oldest governor in America, became the first one to do a political music video. Right. Uh, these were the days of the MTV startup, and Hammond had the great idea that Bob War should do a music video to the music of a new Henry Lee Summer song called Stay With Me. And uh, it was quite something. I, I'm still shocked to this day that Gordon, let it, Gordon paid for it. <laughs> Gordon being Gordon Durnell, the state GOP chairman right. who uh, was in charge of the campaign. Gotcha. Um, so um, you, you mentioned education. I mean, it, one of the things that, that Bob Ward did it as governor was, was uh, win passage of the, of the prime time education plan, which reduced class sizes uh, in Indiana. Was that, was that his primary accomplishment? Well, his primary, that, that, that happened in 1986. The bigger education accomplishment was the 87 A plus legislation which we got about two thirds of. Um, it was, you know, this, this is too bad that John Hammond's not on here with us. This was, this was John's baby. It was the most far reaching education reform package of its day, um, close on the heels of what Lamar Alexander had done in Tennessee, but went further than that. It, it called for an enormous amount of new accountability the whole idea of doing statewide testing came out of the A-plus program in 1987. Um, it was Governor Orr who, who suggested in that package that we should tie teacher compensation to student performance. Um, and no one's gone near that third rail. Uh, well, Tony Bennett did, tried to, tried to bring back some of that stuff. Most of that A-plus accomplishments were uh, eviscerated during the Biden administration 
some by Republican members of the General Assembly um, who, who are very responsive to the most powerful politicians in their districts. And those people are school superintendents. And, uh, and, and teachers. I mean, Bob, Bob Orr essentially was at war with the Indiana State Teachers Association. We were indeed, and and but but for good cause. We were never going. No, we never went out looking for enemies. Um, but Bob War came to the conclusion that we really needed a significant cultural change in Indiana. Uh, that that we were a state that had somehow lapsed into a psychology of being good enough. Which, if you go back in Indiana history to the early part of the 20th century, Indiana was the most happening place there was. Um, it, it, it was a it was a vital and ambitious place to live. And somehow, I always believe I'd love to go do a PhD project on this, get my doctoral degree. I think it came out of the Ku Klux Klan takeover of the state in the 20s when we sort of volunteered to dumb ourselves down. And Bob War was the one who said, this isn't gonna stand. His 1987 State of the State speech, which I think is a, a, an, an incredible um, statement, um, could be given today, sadly, without very much change and still be true. Uh, Governor Daniels put a big dent in that, and I think he sort of picked up the flag that Bob War uh, died on the field of battle with, picked it up, and started to re-energize that that attempt to, as Governor Daniels would say, aim higher. And he got and he made a lot of progress on that front. But it has to be sustained over a long period of time in order to get the psychology of the state to be different. In that speech in '87, he gave every member of the legislature a book by David Halberstam called The Reckoning. And it was a book about how mediocrity in the automobile industry caused the collapse of the American automobile industry. And he said, look, this is gonna be our fate as well uh, if we don't do something radically different. And then he um, tried to pass the most ambitious education reform package in the country. Darlene, we need to bring you in here a, a little bit. I, you worked in the Senate. Bob War came from the Senate. He, he, he served as Lieutenant Governor, which is President of the Senate. And, and it seemed to me that, that uh, as Governor, of the governors I've covered, and there have been a few, um, he, he looked to the legislature uh, for solutions more than others. Is that fair? Well, he did. And he looked to the legislature for, for partnerships. I mean, he, he was a product of the Senate. He understood the legislative process as, as uh, well or better than any, any um, and knew how important it was. Um, and it also, the process also helped bring along the public because the legislative process is such a, is such a public process with public hearings and a lot of uh, uh, public engagement with citizens coming to the state house. So he understood that, pro that, that process and he respected it. And so um, he did, he, he had several uh, key allies in both houses, um, you know, a couple on uh, both sides of the aisle, I'll leave it to Bob and to Mark to um, correct me there, um, at least one or two, especially on the education reform package. I mean, there was Democrat Senator Louis Mayhern was, was very helpful and instrumental in, 
in um, getting that through as, as well as the Republican allies. So yes, he did. Um, absolutely. Mark mentioned the Subaru Isuzu deal. That was uh, the first uh, uh, Japanese owned auto plant to come to Indiana. Actually, Indiana was uh, near the end of the list in terms of Midwest states to land Japanese auto plants. And there was a lot of criticism of that. But the reality is uh, it, Bob Orr did a lot to open up uh, foreign trade uh, in Indiana in ways that, that continue today. Yeah, he absolutely did. It was a huge priority. Um, it came out of his own personal experience as a businessman in Evansville. Um, he knew that that markets around the world could be opened. It just took effort. And he was convinced that you could, you could build a great deal of economic growth for the people of Indiana if people would just focus on foreign trade. So the Department of Commerce had fantastic people who worked on opening up foreign markets. We had our share, Jim, as you'll recall, of Japanese parts plants. But what we didn't have was an assembly plan, and that was the big kahuna. Um, and so when Mutz and Orr were able to land it, it was a very big deal. Um, if, if Mike McDaniel were on this podcast, he would, he would probably regret that we ever got that plant because Evan Bayh used it against John Mutz in the 1988 campaign to great effect. And the ir irony of that was that Wayne Townsend used the idea that we did not have an auto plant by circulating in one of his ads a copy of all the Midwestern states around us and circling the plants that they had. And we had a big zero at that point. And that to me was the greatest irony about that whole process. Um, you know, I would just add one thing that people really don't, you know, I want to go back to, and I think Mark and Darlene, you talk about a guy's character, but Subaru Suzu. When they came in and it was in, and we were negotiating, I was an outside lawyer then, but the biggest issue there was to get enough um, land to be able to, in those days, now it's easy because all we have everything. We did not have statutes like we have today, but he had to come up with the land. And he and I and, and state treasurer Marjo Laughlin <coughs> figured out that the state could ultimately finance something if in fact they came in um, and we could give them some credits, but we didn't have any mechanism by which to get the actual uh, dollars. And to tell you the kind of governor that he was, he called me one day and he said, come to the office, which I did. And he said, get in the car. And we drove over to INB and met with Tom Miller um, as the president of the bank. And he said to the president of the bank, I need this much money in an unsecured loan. I'm going to go to Frank McKinney and I'm going to go to uh, Tanzel uh, or Frenzel and I'm going to get it from all three banks, but I'm starting with you. And he put that deal together and we literally had the money uh, unsecured from three big banks in Indianapolis and we bought that land and people don't realize, but today this stuff is easier. I mean, and the governors don't do it and probably was controversial. Some might argue whether it's legal. But those were the things that this guy's vision was. He decided that he was going to get that plant, and he knew he had to offer them something that other people wouldn't, and that's what he offered them. And, of course, we built it. We financed it, um, and uh, it was all the debt was retired, and it was expanded. So it worked. But that's the kind of guy that Bob Orr was in terms of what Mark and Darlene we've described earlier. Just, just a guy that was really in his game. 
very bright man. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, a law firm of Bose, McKinney, and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. We are discussing the life, times, and career of former Hoosier Governor Robert Orr. Our guests are Bob Grand, Mark Lubbers, and Darlene Sherman, all of whom worked for the governor at some point. Our co-host is Jim Shella. Bob, maybe you can uh, speak to this part. How did Bob Orr get selected to be Otis Bowen's running mate in 1972? Well, the, uh, the um, incredible uh, lesson that that was learned, uh, I learned directly from the governor uh, at a particular point in time, and that was when Marjo Laughlin, who was the clerk of the courts, decided to run for state treasurer. And uh, Bob Orr called me to his office, and he said, you're going to be Marjo Laughlin's campaign manager, 1986. And I looked at him and I said, you know, my son was just born. I'm, I'm really having problems. I, I've got a whatever. And he said, I, I don't think you heard me. Uh, you're going to be Marjo Laughlin's <laughs> campaign manager. And I said, uh, you know, I felt like, uh, you know, Ruckel's house at uh, getting called to the White House by Nixon. But, um, but he said, uh, I really want you to understand why. He said it was a contested convention. And the county chairman of Marion County, one Keith Bulin, famous guy, wonderful guy, had decided that he was going with John Hart and he had told the caucus that they were all to vote for John Hart. Now, Marjo Laughlin in, would never say a bad word at all, but she did not have a good feeling about John Hart. John Hart had not treated her well in some instance or whatever. So essentially that last ballot, everything in Marion County went for John Hart, except for, I think it was 32 votes out of Washington Township where one Marjo Laughlin was the Washington Township chairman. And Bob Orr won that, I think, by 20 or 18 or whatever. Uh, so, and his telling me that story, he said, quote, unquote, I'm going to get Marjo Laughlin elected state treasurer. By the way, uh, Ed Thuma was in that race and he had been endorsed by Otis Bowen. So this was not going to be like just walk into a convention and whatever. But when he told me that story, and I took Marjo Laughlin to lunch, I mean, she had the actual numbers. She said, yeah. She said, you know, I really like Bob Orr. He's a really decent man. He was very honest. But you know what? He was always treated me politely. And he said, I really, I really appreciated that. And he said, um, I can just tell you that after that vote was cast, and back in those days, they could get the machines, uh, Keith Bulin advised me that my political future was over. <laughs> <laughs> which it wasn't, but anyway. Bob, let me ask you another quick question because you were, you were with uh, Governor Orr uh, the earliest. Did he talk much about his military career? It was mentioned earlier. He left Harvard. He graduated from Yale, went to Harvard. Interesting kind of a, almost a George Bush, George W. Bush uh, approach or career path. Uh, he joined the military without graduating from Harvard, went, served, eventually attained the rank of major uh, in the Pacific and was awarded the Legion of Merit, which is a very, very high award commendation from the United States military. Did he talk about the Pacific much and how it shaped his career and his person? 
No, I, he really didn't. And, and in those, and I think you have relatives, I have relatives from World War II, and those people really didn't talk much about the war. And he was one of those. I don't remember a lot of discussion about it. I do remember a lot of discussion when he discussed Josie, the Women Air Corps, what she or her contributions were. But uh, he, he never really highlighted, uh, we did an ad at one point where he was dressed in a uniform uh, or we, we did some, but he, he, was, he was in the early, in the Lieutenant Governor days in all those travels. I don't remember you know, much, even in the introduction of him, uh, obviously it was a reference to his military background, but he did not talk about it. And you know, in all those times I spent time with him uh, in the conversations, you know, a few, but not very many, I would say. You know, he did not talk, I agree with Bob, he did not talk about that um, experience, part of his life in the office. But when we traveled, I had the opportunity to travel with Bob or overseas on five different trade missions, both to Japan and to Germany. He actually was in both areas, although he served mostly in the Pacific. And he did, he, in, in, um, in sort of the teacher mentor that he was to all of us, he, he talked about his experience, in, especially in Japan. I mean, he was um, many, many times in hundreds of meetings that uh, he sat across the table with business leaders in Japan in particular, and he, the thought would cross his mind. They were the same generation, the same age, and he would wonder um, where they were during, during World War II and whether he faced uh, them in battle. Um, but he had this uh, amazing ability to, um, to get, get past that. Um, and move on. And, and so, and he also talked about, uh, he was served during the occupation after the war and um, mm. those experiences. And, and um, w one other story he, he told us when, when he was in Germany in Southern Germany in Munich, he took us all to the, um, in one of the rare uh, times we had um, kind of off uh, away from a business meeting. He took us to the Hofbrauhaus in Munich and uh, talked about that as a gathering place for his fellow soldiers, um, that they would gather there from time to time and then all leave and be deployed on their various missions and come back. And he talked about the sadness of those who never returned. Um, so um, it was very much a part of his life and, uh, and, and, and part of his thinking and perspective and his global perspective. And, you know, we talk about his... Um, you know, what he came to the governor's office uh, after a 25-year, very successful military career, and then went to into business, was a very successful business leader for 25 years, where he traveled the globe. Um, and um, he brought all that experience and perspective into uh, the state house when he served uh, in, in all three roles there. Uh, thank you, Darlene. That's perfect, actually. In 1980, Robert Orr runs for governor, but there's another very popular Hoosier politician that worked about four blocks away from him, and that was Bill Hudnut. Was there any sense in 1980 that perhaps Bill Hudnut was going to run for governor? Well, there was more than a sense. I mean, there were meetings and there were there were uh, gatherings um, of folks. Um, there were rumors. Um, and, um, um, so, uh, it, it was not a, what you would say a, you know, 100% real, but, but in the time I sh showed up in 19, 
79 when it was really starting to the campaigns was identified we were obviously out doing things for mayors and campaigns didn't go four years back then they really kind of geared up in early 79 and that's when i was brought on board so john hammond could go to the campaign but throughout 79 uh as mayor hudnut was running for re-election uh he was conveniently running for re-election and being in a lot of other places um and uh, talking about indianapolis uh, and he was a fine mayor in that sense. But I think that around January of 1980, uh, I would say that there was a buzz that, uh, again, given all the stuff that Mark alluded to earlier, I mean, 84 was not, I mean, 82 was not an easy year. 83 was even tougher. And so, uh, it, you know, I, I, I'm sorry, I wasn't talking about that. In, 70, in 75, 76, 77 with Otis Bowen, he was trying to do a lot of different things and the economies and things were looking, you know, okay. And then Reagan, of course, comes in after Carter, you know, but you still had a lot of stress there. And so we saw a lot of, you know, uh, talk, but honestly, um, I never really saw anything that amounted to a campaign. Darlene, I'm going to ask you this question because there is nobody better at PR than Darlene Sherman. You you have Jim Shella here on the podcast. Present company excluded. <laughs> you must be talking about lovers. Who's pretty damn good himself. How did the news media, the state house media, treat Governor Orr, and what was that relationship like? Well, Bob Orr was very proud of his um, journalistic roots. I mean, he bragged uh, regularly about working for the Yale Daily News, and therefore he considered himself a former journalist. And so he, he had a high respect for um, the role that they played and, um, and individual reporters for the most part. Um, he was accessible. Um, you know, I was told... Uh, Basically, when Mark <laughs> brought me on, you know, when when Bob Orr leaves the office, you're with him, and uh, that was uh, whether he's traveling around the state or or traveling around the world, uh, and I was, and so I had the opportunity to see him interact with reporters all over the state and all over the, um, you know, when we traveled overseas as well, um, and you know, I think that they had a respectful relationship, um, but. I think Bob Orr was, uh, was of the g generation and maybe, I mean, you know, by today's standards, he would be considered maybe establishment back then, even though he was from a policy standpoint way ahead of his time, but they didn't find him exciting. And, um, you know, you don't really understand. I think the dynamic I didn't understand until after um, he left office and a new governor and you had the opportunity to compare, you know, how the media uh, covered one Governor Orr versus the next new, young, exciting uh, governor. And so um, it, that, which was very, was, was fascinating and very interesting. The expectation was that Bob Orr was always accessible. And I know the governor by, they were a little bit more scheduled about his, his uh, uh, time with, with reporters and so on. So, um, but, but he, I got to tell you, I'll tell you one story. Um, a lot of times reporters would go, uh, one in particular, remember, we all remember Bob Ashley would, would walk in the governor's office and walk straight up to the, the governor's scheduler and want to want to talk to Bob Orr. And um, Bob Orr always had his door open. And so 
my office was in the hallway and wherever the glass doors are there. And I heard this booming voice, you know, <laughs> yelling, um, you, if you want to talk to me, go, you know, you go down the hall and talk to Darlene um, and, and, um, and she'll arrange it for you, which is probably one of the rare times when he really, um, you know, wasn't willing at the moment, you know, to talk to a reporter because we'd walk out when he left the building um, he would allow me to bring reporters to him that had questions on his way out the door to getting in his car to, um, you know, whenever he had a minute, he, he, he was, he was ava available and accessible. So, um, and he insisted that the door be open and he, and he insisted that the press boxes be uh, at the other end of that hallway. So when reporters came into the, into the office, Mark, Mark uh, remodeled the office and was very much part of this. So they could stand there and see that he was that his door was open and and he was working and um, it was very important to him transparency um, and accessibility. Let me let me just endorse all of that. He was incredibly available. There was an old radio reporter named Bob Rutherford who uh, figured out what time the governor generally showed up for work and he would meet him at the North door and walk to the office with him and, and conduct an interview on the way. And so every, virtually every morning, Bob Rutherford would have an interview with the governor about whatever the subject of the day was. Bob got to work earlier than the rest of us. Most of us uh, weren't at work yet at that point. But secondly, he, he was not, um, he was not good at messaging. He, he, uh, he, he, it was tough for us to, to, to pick a soundbite out of what he had to say, unless he got angry. Uh, I, I always enjoyed days when Governor Orr got angry because he, uh, he became much more succinct. Mark, would you like to weigh in, Mr. Lovers? I don't think Bob Orr was particularly accessible in the first couple of years. Uh, Jim, you weren't there for much of that, but I know from talking to members of the press corps, they found the opening of the office, which I did and made an intentional effort to do, refreshing. Uh, my view was that Bob War was a very smart guy. Jim was masterfully diplomatic. He was horrible with electronic media. Uh, Darlene is exactly right. He fancied himself a journalist, but a print journalist of a former era. My view was we had a lot of smart people in the news media, Shella included, and they could figure out how to how to find the soundbite. And it wasn't always easy, but it was there. And I never worried that he was going to misspeak because he was a very smart guy. He just wasn't very he wasn't very polished when it came uh, to dealing with electronic media. Now I got to say something else here, and that is that. You know, politicians today complain about the news media in the state house. We had lions of journalism in the state house in those days. I mean, the place was jam packed with some of the very best journalists the state had ever seen. And there were two times as many of them. Um, and so it was a gauntlet of people. You had, I don't want to sound like I'm aggrandizing Shella. But I mean, he is and was the dean of the State House Press Corps and survived and uh, had, had dozens and dozens and dozens of news breaking stories in his career. A damn good journalist. You had the likes that sitting on that AP desk, Jan Carroll, there was never anybody smarter than Jan Carroll about 
ferreting out a story. Uh, Ed Zigner was still around until I got him fired. Um, <laughs> and, you, and the place was just chock full of people who could take you down if you were not careful. And I never worried about Bob Orr uh, making a mistake because he's just he was smart and he was honest. I it got to be a popular expression in the Reagan days. Let Reagan be Reagan. I felt the same way about Bob Orr. Let Bob Orr be Bob Orr. Mm -hmm. He wasn't ever going to be great with a soundbite, but you always knew he was going to be honest. And I think over time, that carried the day. When we redesigned the office in 1986, I made sure that those press boxes sat where uh, every everyone in the news media, Bob Orr used to sit in that corner, Bob, remember with those uh, that little uh, couch and those that chair setting was, and he, he conducted almost every meeting there in that little corner. And I made sure that those press boxes were put right there so that as, as the members of the media took stuff out of the press boxes, they could look down that long hallway and make eye contact with the governor. And that door was almost always open. And uh, that was the first question. thing that got changed in the Biden administration. About, excuse me, Mark, sorry, about uh, John Mutz. Uh, Bob, do you want to talk a little bit about how John Mutz became uh, Bob Orr's running mate? Or, and then, Darlene, would you like to talk a little bit about uh, how Governor Orr felt when Mutz lost the 1988 election to Evan Bayh? Bob? Well, just a very simple, Mark Mark was part of a conversation that we were the other day where we had Gordon Durnell, John Hammond, uh, Mike McDaniel, uh, and uh, Mark and myself. And I mean, it's a real simple equation. My, Mike McDaniel ran an incredible campaign. And uh, in that convention, it was very contested. Back to the theory about things were starting to not be good in the county chairman ranks. There was all kinds of conversations about their power in a convention, so forth and so on. And yet we gone to a direct primary for the first time. And Mike McDaniel ran a campaign which ended up the last week with a postcard that looked like Bob Orr was endorsing John Mutz. Uh, and uh, that's not the only thing, but I think that was key. And, uh, and uh, Bob Orr had a very healthy respect for John Mutz. They both had similar backgrounds, similar roles in the Senate. Um, but that was my, I mean, when we were talking about that the other day, Mark, that was kind of my thought. I mean, Mike really gets a lot of credit for running one heck of a campaign. Couldn't agree more. Darlene, talk a little bit, please, about how Governor Orr reacted to the 88 Democrat takeover. Well, I, I would say this. Um, first of all, John Mutz, I was John Mutz's intern in the Senate. I worked for him. So he was a very special um, man to me personally and professionally. And, and, um, worked in that campaign in 80 um, for his uh, election as Lieutenant Governor. He, John Metz was a true 100% partner to Bob Orr. He, he contributed to the success of everything that Bob Orr accomplished. It was a true partnership and Bob Orr felt that and acknowledged that every day, uh, every opportunity that he could. If you read his state of the state addresses, you'll see it there. Uh, but he, he was probably the most uh, impactful lieutenant governor. Um, he was very much like John, uh, like Bob Orr in his background and so on. So when, when, um, and I, I'm gonna, I want, I want Mark to, to weigh in on this as well. So he was deeply disappointed personally and for the state of Indiana when John Mutz lost that, that, uh, that election. And, um, 
for the state of Indiana, uh, he, he was very concerned about the many accomplishments um, being overturned. And he, he forewarned that, by the way, in his farewell address to the legislature in 19, early 1989. And um, some of that a- absolutely came to pass. Um, so he, 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 he was disappointed personally um, for, for John Mutz because he truly thought he was the most qualified and that he was the, the, the one to, the, to take the mantle and then take Indiana to the next level. And then um, he was very disappointed for the state of Indiana because of, of uh, the work of the last eight years was uh, much of, some of it was going to be overturned. Did he campaign much for John Mutz? John Mutz, excuse me? Yes. So he put some real and effort. Look, 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 I mean, Donnelly, if I could just, you know, and Mark said earlier, you know, things he said privately, he'll say publicly. I mean, you know, one of the big issues in that, you could say whatever, was the residency case. Um, and, you know, Bob Orr's decision was that there'd been a case in South Dakota where they waited until the last minute and it backfired and whatever. So his idea was, we're going to get out front on this and make that an issue. Um, and it was a disagreement. And I'm not saying it was me. I did have a different opinion on that, as I think Mark will remember and others, but, and there were other law firms that were represented in that room. But the biggest issue about that was that Bob War kind of made that decision and they went along with it. But we gave Evan By the greatest free exposure, I think, uh, that we've ever given anybody. And at the time when you're talking about changes. You're talking about Republicans in control for 24 years. I mean, there were lots of different things, license branches, you know, kind of coming to the, to the, to the front uh, a lot more even then. Uh, it, it was tough. Um, but, uh, but Bob War was deeply affected by it. And, and Bob War felt in the conversations I had with him, and there were many of them, because at that point I was his outside counsel, uh, he was disappointed uh, that he couldn't do more. I mean, he felt as if uh, John Mutz was a great partner and uh, he raised money for John Mutz. Every time we did an event, he showed up. I mean, he was he was engaged, but I think felt a little bit like, you know, I, I want to do more and I can't. Mark? Yeah, it was heartbreaking uh, for Bob Orr uh, that John lost that race. Um, and it was just nothing that you could do. It's one of those... Uh, things that politics has tides and it was Republicans had controlled the state house or the governor's office at that point uh, for what 16 years and you know there comes a there comes a sentiment among the populace that that um, they just want to change and I would say that that was the difference in the race is that sort of undercurrent of it's time for a change. Uh, and there's nothing you can do about that. And I agree with Bob that Evan was boosted. Shella will, will have a better uh, commentary on this than any of us because he watched it and covered it and has a more objective view. But um, I think the residency case and, and the argument for our listeners that Evan By was not a resident of Indiana um, and at least under the state law, uh, probably helped Evan way more than it hurt him. 
Yeah, for what it's worth, uh, state law requires a, a candidate for governor to live in Indiana for five years prior to the election. And, they, and there was a, a technical legal argument to be made there. But essentially, the, the, you know, the big picture argument was this was an effort to convince people that Senator Birchby's son was not a Hoosier and uh, it backfired. Let me ask one more question, then I'll, I'll turn it over to Jim for a final question before we end the podcast. Leaders and Legends podcast, we're discussing the career of Governor Robert Orr with Bob Grand, Mark Lubbers, Darlene Sherman, and co-host Jim Shella. One of the things that's come up on the other podcasts I've done about elected officials is sort of like their family tree, their political family tree. And the three of you worked for Governor Orr. You mentioned other folks, uh, John Hammond, who's a friend. Ken Kobe, who's another friend, and the list goes on and on. And perhaps maybe uh, Bob Orr's greatest accomplishment was launching the career of Tim Oaks. That has to be at the very, very top of the list, of course. But how important was it to the governor to create this political tree of his and see all his aides and department heads and workers and associates prosper? Bob? I would just simply summarize it this way. Look at his cabinet, look at his appointments, and look at the age of those people. Um, he was committed. You know, he had Judge Ryan, who was always good for the fact that he sat at the end of the table, and all of us would pop off about something, and Judge Ryan would take a drag on a cigarette and say, we tried that 25 years ago, and it was stupid, and that would be the end of it. Uh, <laughs> but, but, he, but he didn't do that. He didn't do that every time, and he didn't do it. But he was surrounded. Bob Orr surrounded himself. Every appointment, when you look at that transition, go back and look, the people that he replaced, you know, a state board of accounts putting in, you know, Jim, uh, what's his name, and then Jim Gutting. And, you know, I mean, guys that were, there, there were some older people in there, Beasley and others, but there were primarily younger people, all of his staff, uh, you know, Mark was young then, uh, and, 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 and Darlene uh, and, and folks like that. But really, when you look at it, to me, I've always said he was absolutely committed to doing that. And he also had another uh, trait about him, which he followed through on. And particularly in my case, you know, he had my law school schedule. He wouldn't let me miss class. I mean, his view was if a bus and, or if a train and I hit, you got to have a future. And he encouraged people to go to school. He encouraged people to finish school. Some misled him on whether they finished school or not. And we had to straighten that out, but he was adamant about that. And that's what I think was his incredible tree. Uh, not that other governors haven't done it, but that was his tree. And those people today, there's a lot of young people now, not young, not so young, Randy Shepard, another that he brought into this thing. And I think it's, it's an amazing testament to his skill and ability to recruit and, and, and promote young people. Mark Lubbers, I was just getting ready to mention Randy Shepard. Is, his, is that maybe perhaps Governor Orr's mm -hmm. lasting legacy to Indiana is the brilliant career of Randy Shepard? It's certainly one of the, his crowning legacies, and we fought hard to get <laughs> Justice Shepard named Chief Justice, uh, one, of the, one of the more interesting battles. Um, I remember locking Channel 13 out of a news conference, the only time I ever did that, and I wasn't even press secretary at the time. I came back from the dead to do that. Um, that, was after, uh, that was after Bob Orr walked out of an interview at Channel 13, correct? It was. I was there, and we walked out intentionally. Uh, it was offensive. And that uh, was but I uh, to so and 
yes to Randy Shepard. I just want to um, emphasize the point that Bob made. You know, Bob Orr was the oldest governor in America, and he had the youngest staff in America. He loved young people. He loved new ideas. He liked being challenged by young people, and he liked influencing their careers. And I think he took great pride in, in, in all of the work that uh, people went on to do. Um, he, he was a real champion of the future. He cared about the future. He was a man of the future, not the past. Jim, you got one more question for the group or you want to? Yeah, wanna... no, no, I think we need to we, go ahead, Bob, you first. I was just going to say it could be summarized this way. When I graduated from law school, he actually showed up at my swearing in ceremony. There was a, a thing there, but and, and I had lost a girlfriend uh, who I dated for a long time and she actually came back and I'm now married to her. But the fact of the matter was that Bob Orr said standing in the Supreme Court, this, this is a, a whole identification of how, what he thought about. It. He goes, you know, Grand, he always called me Grand. He said, you know, Grand, I'm willing to bet today that in your legal career, it will mean more to you to have been an administrative assistant to the governor than to have been on law review. And you know, to that date, I never made law review, but to be on that date, it's really been true. And that summarizes kind of his thought process of the idea that he knew that he was doing something for me that was extraordinary. And, uh, and I would say to you that there's not many days that go by that you don't reflect on that. And I think that's about his attitude about young people and what he, he was thinking like that. Darlene? Something else about his character, I've told the story many times, but listeners need to hear it. Uh, at one particularly difficult time when lots of us were spending 10, 12, 13 hours a day working, he picked up the phone one day and called my wife. And we had two little girls at the time. And he said, uh, Teresa answered the phone and, he, and, and said, well, Mark's not here, Governor. She, he said, oh, I know. He's down in the office working down the hall. He said, I called to talk to you. He said, I just want you to know that I know you are making a sacrifice by supporting him, by letting him do very long hour days. And I, he said, I want you to know that I appreciate it. That is stunning for a politician to have that much sense and sensitivity to the mm -hmm. entire network of people that are supporting the work that you do. And it's an extraordinary thing and completely, completely in tune with the man he was. Darlene? I'll just add that, um, you know, he was a consummate gentleman um, many, many times, countless times. Um, I would come into my office and uh, he would have left a, a note on my desk thanking me for one thing or the other, leaving me a book with something that he thought I would be interested in reading. Um, many times at the end of a very long, long day, and we had very long days when we were out especially with uh, selling the A-plus program during that legislative session, I would get home and he would have left a voicemail message on my answering machine thanking me again. I mean, he's just, he was just a wonderful, wonderful uh, gentleman uh, in addition to being the wisest uh, man I've, I've, I've ever worked with. Um, and I would just conclude by saying this. I mean, I never in all that time I, I would I have thought that I would have served in the legislature and my very brief, 18 month stint uh, in the legislature, uh, his, his voice was the voice in my head um, through every policy discussion, um, every bill, 
debate, uh, what would Bob Orr do? What would Bob Orr think of this? Um, he, he's, he's had that kind of profound influence on all of us, really, um, the role model um, and the example he set for all of us. Um, so, uh, and, and I would just say this, uh, the, a saying he used to quote, the wise man plants uh, the tree whose shade he will never enjoy. And uh, Bob Orr, as I said, was, was, was the wisest um, uh, of the wise. Jim Shella, do you have a final comment? Thought? Yeah, I'll just finish with a fun story. I was uh, 1988. I was in New Orleans to cover the Republican National Convention, and we got there a, a, a day early. And Bob Orr was already there because he'd been on the uh, the GOP platform committee. And so the the delegation hotel was, was mostly empty, um, with the exception of the Channel 8 crew and Bob Orr. And... Uh, uh, there was a bar in the hotel. And so I went and knocked on his door and said, Governor, we're not doing anything. You want to go get a beer? And he said, sure. So we went down to the bar and uh, sat at the piano. It was a piano bar. And we sat there and we had a beer or two, had a nice conversation. And uh, at some point, the piano player came in and sat down. And uh, the governor looked at him and said, you're not going to start playing, are you? <laughs> and the guy said, it's what I'm here for. It's what I get paid to do. And the governor looked at him and said, well, I guess, I guess there goes the conversation. <laughs> that was the, that was the end of our evening. So, but he was very straightforward, very straightforward. Thank you for listening to the leaders and legends podcast. Our sponsors are girl scouts of central Indiana, Garmond construction, the law firm of Bose McKinney and Evans and the Bose public affairs group the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery. Our guests have been Bob Grand, Mark Lubbers, Darlene Sherman, all discussing the career, personality, and impact of Governor Robert Orr. Thank you, Jim Shella, for serving as co-host, and thank you all for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Mm-hmm.